This is episode 259 of the AWS podcast, released on August 19th, 2018. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS podcast. Simon Lisher here with you. Great to have you back, and it is going to be a bit of a monumental show today. We have a lot of updates to go through, and as always, it is not an exhaustive list. Scary as that may sound, I've tried to cherry pick all the good stuff and uh, lots of stuff just couldn't make the cut, but everything is useful for our customers. And in today's episode, hopefully there'll be one or more things for you. Now, one thing I'm not going to be talking about is all the services that have been uh, launched in different regions available to our customers all around the world. You can always go and check the global website to help you understand that. That's our global cloud infrastructure website. Link in the show notes to show you whether a particular service is available in your region. There have been lots launched all around the place recently, so that's a good place to start if you're wondering whether a particular service is available in the region that you want to use it in. So let's get right into it. I'll be moving pretty quick because there's a lot to cover and I want to keep the time reasonable. So let's start with Amazon EFS, the Elastic File System. So you can now have what's called provisioned throughput. So in the past, you had to sort of size your uh, capacity to also give you the throughput that you wanted. Now those are disconnected. And essentially, you can tune the amount of performance you need, irregardless of the actual capacity that you need. So you can choose the throughput that you want uh, in a very simple and straightforward way. You can do it through the console, through the CLI, or through the API. Another bit of news about EFS, it is now uh, it has achieved PCI DSS compliance. So if you're storing sensitive credit card payment information, the encrypted Amazon EFS file system supports that uh, approach and is part of your compliance regime. There have been lots of launches around the EC2 family of compute instances for you to take advantage of. So let me run you through a few. One of the ones that I think is very popular today is the EC2 P3 instances. Now, these are one of the most powerful GPU instances that you can get in the cloud, and it's now available in six additional regions. So it's available in Europe, Frankfurt, Europe, London, Canada, Central, Asia, Pacific, Sydney, Asia, Pacific, Singapore, and China, Ningxia. I think I said that right. So now there are 14 regions you can use this in. And these instances have up to eight of the latest generation NVIDIA Tesla V100 GPUs. So you can get up to one petaflop of mixed precision performance per instance. And this is really useful for machine learning and also for high performance compute type applications as well. Another new instance type you'll see is the SBE1 instance type. And this is a Snowball Edge uh, instance type for use on the AWS Snowball Edge component. And uh, I'll be doing a separate podcast about that, so I'm not going to go into detail, but if you see the SBE one, Snowball Edge is what it is. But let's talk about a new instance type. This is the EC2R5 instances, and this is the next generation of our memory optimized instances. So the EC2R5 instance gives you Intel Xeon Platinum 8000 series processors, and you can have a sustained all-core frequency of up to 3.1 gigahertz, and what this means is you're basically getting up to 50% more vCPUs and 60% more memory over the R4 instances. They also give you 5% additional memory per vCPU and a 10% per gig price improvement over the R4 instances. So again, what you're getting here is a faster instance at a low per performance cost. So if you're already using the R4s, you might want to look at the R5s for your particular application. Uh, particularly if that is something of interest to you. Currently available in US East North Virginia, Ohio, US West Oregon, EU Ireland, and uh, these will also be made available in other regions very, very soon. Another new instance type is the Z1D instance type. 
and this gives you a sustained all-core frequency of 4 gigahertz. So it's the fastest of any cloud instance, and it has a custom Intel Xeon scalable processor. And it also has up to 1.8 terabytes of local storage, and you can get it in six different sizes with up to 48 vCPUs and 384 gig of memory. And there'll also be support for a bare metal instance type of this as well. And this is really useful for very specific applications, things like electronic design automation, gaming, and certain relational database workloads that have a high per core licensing cost. Uh, this instance type takes advantage of the Nitro system, so this gets rid of all the virtualization overhead, gives you more hardware resource for your workloads. It also gives you direct access to high-speed local storage over PCI, and it transparently encrypts all data using dedicated hardware. So it's very, very powerful. These particular instances are currently available in US East North Virginia, US West Oregon, US West North California, EU Ireland, Asia Pacific Tokyo, Asia Pacific Singapore, and more to come as well. So really an interesting new instance type there. Speaking of which, the M5D instances are available in new regions around the world. So you can check out some of the additional locations. These are really good instances for a balance of compute and memory and high-speed local latency block storage. So things like data logging, media processing, transitive type workload. The C5D instances, I should say, are also available in a number of different regions as well. And you can take advantage of these for a variety of compute intensive workloads that you might have that also need that local block storage. There have also been some really interesting changes to the EC2 F1 instance type. Now, this is the field programmable gate array instance type. There are now some new uh, abilities to take advantage of more kernels than ever before. So the development tools now support up to 60 kernels. This is compared to 16 in previous versions. So this lets you have more compute for C or C++-based accelerators. Also, because of some customer feedback, the DMA or direct memory access performance has improved by five times allowing the accelerator engine to stream data to and from the CPU at very high speed and increase application performance. What about deploying workloads to those fancy EC2 instances? Well, now EC2 Fleet supports two new allocation strategies, the on-demand prioritized list and lowest price. Now, just to remind you, EC2 Fleet simplifies the provision of EC2 capacity across different instance types, availability zones, and also across on-demand reserved instances and spot purchase models. This allows you to balance the needs of scale, performance, and cost. And you can let it decide where to put the capacity for the best outcomes that you're trying to get to. Now you can use a, what's called a prioritized list to specifically determine the order in which EC2 Fleet attempts to fulfill your on-demand capacity. So it'll attempt to launch all capacity using the instance with the highest priority first, and if it can't be fulfilled using that priority instance, it'll attempt launching it using the second priority instance type, etc. And you can define a priority for all instances that you specify in your EC2 fleet. You can also now balance your desired cost and availability in the context of specific applications by directing EC2 fleet to evenly deploy spot capacity across the end lowest priced instance pools. So you may choose, for example, if you're doing some batch processing, to set N to 2 to maximize your savings, uh, whilst make sure you always have some compute capacity. But if you're running a web service, you might need it to be 10 to minimize the impact of any spot instance pool becoming temporarily unavailable. Anyway, lots more detail about this in the show notes because it is a really powerful way to deploy your fleets. Earlier on, I mentioned the EC2 Nitro system, and this is a collection of AWS-built hardware and software components that enable high performance, high availability, high security, and bare metal capabilities 
to eliminate virtualization overhead. Now, there have been some great new enhancements that the team have done. They've increased the maximum EBS-optimized instance bandwidth to 14 gig per second, so this is up from 9. have also increased the maximum EBS-optimized instance IOPS to 80,000 IOPS, up from 64,000. This gives you some real increase in performance available to you. There's also some increases in the burst performances, details in the show notes as well. So what this allows you to do is to get more out of the instances you're already running. So in particular, these are things like the C5, C5D, M5, M5D instance types as an example. Now, regular listeners will know that I always like to remind you of cost savings that you can make and make sure you optimize your environment. And we try to make it easy for you to surface those opportunities. There are now reserved instance purchase recommendations for your Amazon Redshift, Amazon Elastic Cache, and Amazon Elastic Search reservations using the AWS Cost Explorer. So if you haven't gone into the Cost Explorer, you should, because it's really, really powerful and really, really useful. And it will automatically identify opportunities for you to save money based upon your actual usage. I always recommend that customers go in at least once every three months, if not more often, to just see what the performance profile of their workload looks like. And if they have an opportunity to optimize or save money, the Cost Explorer will let you see that. Let's talk for a moment about managing, again, managing those EC2 instances. So the AWS Systems Manager allows you to have a complete view of operational data from your AWS services, and it helps you do those operational tasks. One of the most popular ones is the run command that operates on EC2, and there is a change. Now the run command will stream output to Amazon CloudWatch logs. This means you can track your command execution in near real time. So this solution is designed to let you remotely and securely manage instances at scale with safety controls. So this uh, run command capability gives you a really simple way of automating very common administrative task, running shell scripts, installing software patches, etc., without having to log into the machine itself or potentially thousands of machines. But you can still see the results in real time in your CloudWatch logs. It now also supports conditional branching for step failure. So essentially what it will do automatically is now know what to do if something works well or doesn't work well. So you can do graceful exits, send notifications, variety of cleanup actions, etc., to just get you into the right state when you exit a update that didn't go the way you want it to go. So a nice feature update there as well for that particular service. If you're working more in the container persuasion, then uh, you might be using Amazon EKS, the Amazon Elastic Container Service for Kubernetes. And you can now get access to the build scripts for the optimized AMI or Amazon Machine Image from github.com. Now, this is really useful because you can now build your own optimized AMI for the worker nodes instead of just using the ones that we provide. So you can make any changes that you might want as well. It also provides you in that particular template, CloudFormation template, so you can spin up an instance running the EKOS optimized AMI and register it with a cluster. Uh, You can also see how everything fits together and works. So a really great way to customize your own experience as well. And speaking of custom experiences, you're probably very familiar with auto-scaling. Well, now application auto-scaling can be used to add scaling to any services that you build on AWS. So this is like EC2 auto-scaling, but it's a different service. And it's basically allows you to automatically scale compute and data resources like DynamoDB, ECS, RDS Aurora Replicas, AppStream 2.0, SageMaker, EC2 Spot Fleet, or Amazon EMR. Uh, Now, anything that you build that has an adjustable resource capacity can be automatically scaled using the new custom resource scaling feature in application auto scaling. So this is a really powerful capability. Uh, In fact, there's a really good blog post linked in the show notes as well about how Netflix is using this particular feature. Uh, It's a great one to build that automation and scalability into your own environment. Do you run a VPC? 
And have you ever wanted to bring your own IPs to a VPC because maybe you've whitelisted them with a provider or you're limited by application architecture to use a certain set of IP addresses? Well, guess what? It's now in preview. So Bring Your Own IP is available for preview in the US West Oregon region. And what this means is that you can use your own publicly routable IP addresses with AWS EC2 resources, network load balancers, NAT gateways, etc. After you bring those IPs to AWS, AWS will advertise your public IP address on the internet. Uh, you still have access to Amazon IP addresses and you can choose to use your own or Amazon's one or both. Uh, so this is something if you're interested in, have a look at the preview and see if it fits your use case. If you're a longtime EBS user, then uh, you'll know that snapshots are a really powerful thing, but also they can tend to proliferate a lot. The Amazon Data Lifecycle Manager DLM for EBS snapshots gives you a very simple and automated way to backup data stored on EBS volumes. You can also set the retention uh, schedules, the backup schedules. You can create lifecycle policies based on tags, etc. Really straightforward. A whole bunch of new APIs available with the CLI as well. You can set policies on the console. Uh, it is available in US East, North Virginia, US West Oregon, and Europe Island at the moment. Doesn't cost anything, just the cost of the snapshots themselves, obviously. So this is a good one to play with if you're into the automation of your EBS snapshots. This might make your life a lot easier. Now, I've got to make a big call out to one of our oldest service teams, the Amazon S3 team, the Simple Storage Service, because they continue to iterate on behalf of our customers with that service. And it is one of my favorites because it just does so much. Well, guess what? You just got a performance increase and you didn't have to do anything for it. So Amazon S3 now supports at least 3,500 requests per second to add data and 5,500 requests per second to retrieve data for each S3 prefix. So what this means is you can have a significant improvement in processing time without having to make any changes. Now, S3 prefixing is a technique that we use in terms of the way we name objects to maximize performance. Lots of detail and documentation about that. But this means that your uh, ability to scale overcomes a lot of the limitations that you might have had before if you're really pushing the service hard. This increases their available to you at no cost, available in all AWS regions. Another team that's been working hard for their customers is at the Amazon CloudFront team. They've announced a raft of new edge locations. Uh, Cape Town, South Africa, Denver, Colorado, Frankfurt, Germany, Taipei, Taiwan. They've also uh, grown the platform around uh, the Los Angeles area in California, San Jose, Newark, Dallas-Fort Worth, Miami, Florida, more edge locations in London, in Frankfurt, and also in Tokyo as well. So lots of uh, additional capacity, some new cities, some additional points in the existing city. Essentially, what we're expecting is that this will uh, – uh, increase processing capacity on average by about 40% in the five North American cities and the two in Europe that I mentioned as well. So some great performance increases that you get without having to do anything. We also now have some new Amazon Route 53 expansion as well. This is now available in Africa with new edge locations in both Cape Town and Johannesburg. So this is actually the first physical presence of Route 53 in the African content. And we expect that customers are going to see great availability and performance improvements for customers and end users in that region. In fact, we expect to see them uh, deliver improvements as much as 75% in terms of DNS query latency. So if you're in that region, you can look forward to some even more performance out of your Route 53 deployments. And it seems like the uh, time for limit increases, which is always a good thing because customers tend to grow over time. So we need to support that. The Amazon API gateway has increased its API limits. The number of APIs per account has been increased to six 
800 regional APIs, 600 private APIs, and 120 edge location APIs as well. And you can now create and import regional and private APIs as a rate of one request for every three seconds. And you can deploy APIs at a rate of one request every five seconds. So this is really useful if it's in your workflow, doing a lot of rapid deployments, this can help you with that. However, it's not always going faster that's important. Sometimes you want to throttle things. So the Amazon API Gateway usage plans now support method level throttling. So this means you can throttle a request for individual methods at different rates uh, by configuring it at that level. And this means uh, that you can extend the way that we can already deploy specific rates and quotas. And what this allows you to do is to cater for individual API client keys, uh, individual users, et cetera, to make sure that they're calling the particular method at the rate you want. So you may choose for a more administrative method to have a lower throttle versus a read method, for example. The other change made by the Amazon API Gateway team is it now supports request response parameters and status overrides without modifying your backend API code. Hooray! So you can now remap your status code based upon the contents of the body. You can also override response headers as well as request headers, query strings, and path parameters based on the contents of the body, other parameters, or the status code. So for example, if you have a legacy backend API that gives you maybe a 200 HTTP status code, but the body says input field out of range, you can now remap it, for example, to a status code of 400 because that's what you want to give it. So really, this gives you the choice to better customize the front-end experience irregardless of the legacy backend you're hooking into. So it gives you a lot more options. And I know people who are working in this space will be going, aha, this is really, really handy. Speaking of really, really handy, a new addition for Amazon Guard Duty, which is a service that allows you to automatically do a lot of security analysis on your AWS accounts. Uh, you can now automate Amazon Guard Duty provisioning across multiple accounts and regions with the AWS CloudFormation StackSets integration. You still go through the similar invitation approach. However, once it's created, you can do a lot of automation or provisioning and updating across hundreds of accounts. This was a big ask by customers who wanted to really use this across the board. This makes it really easy to get it up and going. Speaking of security, AWS Secrets Manager is a really popular service for storing your secrets and it now supports AWS Private Link. So this means you can route your data between your Amazon Virtual Private Cloud and Secrets Manager entirely within the AWS network. So if you don't want your data to transit outside, it won't. And there is also now an integration between the AWS Systems Manager Parameter Store and the AWS Secrets Manager. So what this means is that the Parameter Store can now retrieve secrets managed in AWS Secrets Manager. So now you can use a single set of APIs for retrieving your parameters managed in Parameter Store, as well as secrets that are managed in Secrets Manager. And there's a whole set of documentation about how to do that. You can also now add labels to your parameter versions so you can have human readable names to understand what it is you created, which is always a problem I have when I go back later on and don't know what I was doing at the time. Now, another really big security change has taken place. You might have missed because it's sort of buried deep within the bowels of how the IAM system works. That's our AWS Identity and Access Management System. And what we've enabled is the ability to delegate permissions management to employees by using IAM permissions boundaries. So I'm going to say that again, IAM permissions boundaries. And what this does is enables you to grant employees and applications access to AWS services, actions, and resources. You may say, well, that's great. So what's different? Well, as your organization grows, you might want to allow trusted employees to configure and manage IAM permissions to help your organization scale the permission management function and move workloads to AWS faster. So you might want to grant a developer the ability to create and manage permissions for an IAM role 
required to run an application on Amazon EC2. Now you can set a permissions boundary to control the maximum permissions employees can grant to the IAM principles, both users and roles, that they create and manage. Now this is a global service that's released in all regions. Essentially what it means is it gives you far more control over what others can do when you delegate access. There's a fantastic blog post that uh, that's on the AWS blog that really draws it out. Think of it as Venn diagrams. It's a really important change. Now, I've been talking a lot about servers, so let's talk briefly about serverless. AWS Lambda now supports .NET Core 2.1, so it uses the .NET Core 2.1 runtime, which will soon be the long-term support or LTS version of .NET Core. And you can use many of some of the new features, so some of the more performant HTTP client implementation and types, uh, the ability to manage memory a little bit better, etc. So if you're into C-sharp development, this is good news for you. If you're responsible for moving data around in your environment, you've probably taken a look at AWS Glue, and if you haven't, you should. Uh, it now provides additional Apache Spark metrics for better debugging and profiling of your ETL jobs. So you can see things a lot better like uh, bytes read and written, memory usage, CPU load on the driver and executors. You can see how many data shuffles are along the way, a whole bunch of really useful stuff, of course, visible in Amazon CloudWatch. So this lets you tune your environment. Now, again, if you're moving data around, another place you might be wanting to read data from is, of course, Amazon DynamoDB. You can now crawl those tables and extract associated metadata as part of the AWS Glue data catalog process. So you can use this straight away. It's available in US East North Virginia, US East Ohio, US West Oregon, EU Frankfurt, EU Ireland, EU London, Asia Pacific Mumbai, Seoul, Singapore, Sydney, and Tokyo. Or if you just want to take something off the shelf and have it all built for you, well, the Data Lake solution now transforms and analyzes data. And we talked about this with the AWS Solutions team a while back, if you remember a previous podcast. They've now updated that particular reference architecture to take advantage of both AWS Glue and Amazon Athena to transform and analyze uploaded data sets with searchable metadata. So a good one to take advantage of if you want to get up and running fast. Another service that can get you up and running fast is the AWS Marketplace. Now, the AWS Marketplace is a curated digital catalog, has over 4,200 software listings from lots of ISVs. And there is a new AWS Marketplace Migration Mapping Assistant. Try and say that fast. And what this does is it allows you to import a list of your current software applications to AWS and run a bulk search to find corresponding third-party products that you could purchase and deploy from the AWS Marketplace. It can also help you find equivalent or alternative products in the same category or from the same vendor. This is really useful because a lot of customers have found it's easier to procure and deploy the software and the infrastructure for it from the marketplace than having to put it together themselves. This allows you to see, do we have in the catalog the things you want or should we be looking to put them in? So let's talk a bit of uh, AI and ML because why not? Uh, the Amazon SageMaker team have been super busy because customers have been telling us what they want from that particular service, which is a great way to get going into artificial intelligence and machine learning, importantly, being able to train and deploy your models. So Amazon SageMaker now supports resource tags. So you can attach tags to things like notebook instances, training jobs, models, endpoint configurations, and endpoints themselves within SageMaker. So this helps you organize and control your environment a lot easier. They've also now introduced support for high-throughput batch transform jobs for non-real-time inferencing. Now, what this means is you now don't have to resize really large data sets into smaller chunks and manage your real-time endpoints. You can now do a batch transform through a simple API call, irrespective of the data set size. And this makes it a lot more powerful and easy to set things up, so that gets rid of some of that friction there as well. 
There's also now support for pipe input mode for built-in TensorFlow containers. Uh, so this increases, or I should say improves, the start times on jobs and also the processing times on jobs. In many cases, significantly, some tests were seen up to 87% reduction in the start time and 35% reduction in training time. And the quicker the training, the better. Also, uh, it now supports k-nearest neighbor and object detection algorithms. So if those are some algorithms you need to take advantage of, they're there for you. It also now has enhancements to the built-in deep AR blazing text and linear learning algorithms to make them better and more efficient. And also now there is support for China 4.1 as well. So if that's a capability you need, you now have it available to you. Now, a lot of our enterprise customers and systems integrators, as well as managed service providers, like to use the AWS Service Catalog to organize, govern, and provision their AWS resources. Now you can use AWS CloudFormation to create your service catalog resources. So this means you can configure your desired service catalog environment in a reusable CloudFormation template. So you can standardize this across your entire environment. You can also use it as a reusable administrative hub you can use it to also send that information across multiple customers that you may be servicing as well. Another service that's useful for a lot of very specific customer use cases is Amazon Kinesis Video Streams. So this is the ability to process and stream video in near real time. And now it supports HTTP live streaming or HLS to play back live and recorded video from devices. So this means you don't have to do any uh, intermediate processing or conversions. Basically, it does... Uh, it handles all the HLS playback for you. You just create a streaming session using the new API and you can leverage any web player you want. So things like VideoJS or Google Shaka Player, modern web browsers, video players, etc. Anything that's compatible with a fragmented MP4 format will work. And there's a great getting started blog post you can use as well. So let's talk about automated speech. And of course, Amazon Polly is what our customers use for turning text into life live life-like speech, uh, much like what I just did then, I would say. <laughs> so what we're seeing is customers using this for a vast array of different use cases. And so the Poly team have introduced a new feature called time-driven prosody, uh, which automatically adjusts the speech rate based upon a maximum allotted amount of time that you define. Now, this is really useful for use cases where it comes to localization. So say you have some US English speech embedded in your training video and you want to localize it to be in German. If you translate it with Amazon Translate and voice it with Polly, you need to make sure that the German speech corresponds to the frame of video that it's supposed to be. So you make sure that it can't be longer than the US English speech. So this makes it easier to do the dubbing process. I'm probably doing a really poor job of explaining it. It will be replaced by Polly soon, but I think you get the idea of that as well. Speaking of Polly, you could also now support input character limits of 100K. So you can put up to 100,000 characters in an input text using the new asynchronous synthesis task. And you can also store the output files in S3 as well. So this is really useful for voicing long form content like news articles and documents and other things. But we won't say podcast, will we? And another great feature, it is added bilingual Indian English and Hindi language support as well. So Hindi is one of the most widely spoken languages in the world. In fact, over 500 million people. And so we have a new voice that's able to do that voice for you. This really helps you support customers in India because Hindi and Indian English are two of the official languages of India. And so this allows you to voice that content as well. So now Amazon Polly includes 53 voices and 26 languages. So uh, there should be one there for what you need. Now, obviously, if Polly is speaking, you want to give uh, Polly some content. And that's where Amazon Translate can come in. In fact, it's added six new languages. 
Now you can translate Chinese traditional, Czech, Italian, Japanese, Russian, and Turkish. And this is in addition to the existing support for Arabic, Chinese simplified, French, German, Portuguese, and Spanish. So this lets you do lots of interesting cross-lingual things. The other things that are coming in the coming months, we have Danish, Dutch, Finnish, Hebrew, Polish, and Swedish. So some great localization there. That's really exciting for our listeners because I know a lot of you listen from a wide variety of countries. So hopefully there's a language hit there for you. Another small but useful change is that Amazon Transcribe now lets you designate your own Amazon S3 bucket to store your transcription outputs. So you can choose to use your own buckets to store it, or you can use the S3 buckets maintained by the Amazon Transcribe service. Completely up to you, gives you the control that you might want to have. So we're talking a lot about text and a lot about speech, and Amazon Comprehend, which is a really handy service to understand what's going on in documents, now supports syntax analysis. So it allows you to tokenize different components of the text of the document and also understand parts of speech. So you can identify things like word boundaries and labels like nouns and adjectives as well. You can create your own analysis rules, I should say. Uh, So you can look, for example, for all the nouns mentioned within a document, then you can look for all the correlating verbs related to those nouns. It really opens up a world of different uh, options. So it's one of those small changes that has a big result. Speaking of which, Amazon Recognition, Uh, which allows you to identify what's going on in pictures, has increased the accuracy of text in image. So it's increased that accuracy significantly so that you get a better hit rate in terms of identifying text within the picture. Uh, It also has provided expanded support for text rotated from minus 90 to plus 90 degrees from the horizontal axis. So if your picture is not quite straight, or your text, I should say, is not quite straight, this will allow you to get access to it much more easily. If you're into writing APIs, and many of you will be, then you would have noticed the AWS AppSync service, which is a great service for provisioning GraphQL endpoints, which is the uh, more modern way of delivering uh, APIs. So there's been an update to that particular service because if you don't like having to write a GraphQL schema, you don't have to anymore. In fact, you can do it completely with a no-code approach. So you can do it from a visual standpoint and do your complete design. It includes a new query and filtering system. You can do logical comparisons as well. You can do lots and lots of work without doing any coding. Uh, It also supports HTTP endpoints as data sources as well. So this is in addition to DynamoDB, Elasticsearch, and Lambda. So this means you can use any existing backend services that use REST APIs so that you can expand what you can access from your GraphQL interface as well. They've also added support for enhanced GraphQL scalar types, so things like email addresses, phone numbers, JSON objects, and many more. So you can do some field-level validation. Essentially, lots and lots of changes, in fact, more than I've mentioned, that give you even more power into your hands. We've talked a bit about AI. One of the AI approaches that people like is to create bots. Uh, Bots can be really useful to help automate things, chatbots, in-customer interactions, etc. The solutions team has launched the serverless bot framework that deploys an Amazon API gateway where you can have your customer send requests, AWS Lambda that apply machine learning algorithms, Poly to turn text into lifelike speech, Amazon DynamoDB, S3 to store configuration, etc. It's all hooked together and a really, really neat solution. In fact, uh, I've used it for a few live demos, and any of you who have done a live demo in the past know what that can be, and it's always seen me right, which is really nice. If you're doing software development in the serverless realm, then you may have used the AWS Serverless Application Model, or SAM, uh, which is a CLI that lets you build, test, and debug serverless applications locally and deploy them easily. Well, now there is SAM Logs, 
So this is a new command that lets you fetch tail and filter logs generated by your AWS Lambda functions. Lord knows that is handy for me. Uh, and you can also use the SAM local start Lambda command to invoke local Lambda functions from your automated tests as well. So you get lots and lots of capability locally that you can use. Really simple to install, pip install AWS-SAM-CLI and away you go. Or you can use it with AWS Cloud9. Now another big part of software development is of course testing. You do that, don't you? We all test our environments. Uh, so one of the big challenges is orchestrating your testing and now you can have AWS Device Farm as a destination for AWS Code Pipeline. So AWS Code Pipeline is a continuous integration and continuous delivery service that does builds, tests, and deploys for your code every time there's a change. Now you can send that, or include, I should say, AWS Device Farm as a test provider for that software release pipeline. This means if you're deploying to mobile devices, you can have automated testing of a whole range of devices supported by AWS Device Farm as part of your automated process. So how are you doing there? You're still with me? I know it's been a long haul, but there's lots to go and we're going to talk data because data is behind most applications that you'll come across. The good news is, is that Amazon Aurora Serverless is now generally available. So you can take advantage of it with MySQL compatibility. Now, I don't have time in this particular podcast to get into the all kinds of wonderfulness that Amazon Aurora Serverless is, so we'll do a separate episode, but really it provides you with a great way to handle intermittent or cyclical usage patterns in a very cost-effective and performant way. I'm really excited about this technology because I think it will change the way that we'll deploy databases. Speaking of which, Amazon RDS now provides best practice recommendations. So it analyzes your configuration and usage metrics and gives you recommendations in the console. Again, much like checking the usage of your EC2 instances, you should be rechecking and rechecking your RDS databases. This uh, best practices gives you automated information at your fingertips at no additional cost. And speaking of improvements, copying Amazon RDS encrypted snapshots across regions now completes faster and with less storage. So in the past, it was a full copy, which needed more snapshot storage. Now it can do it in an incremental basis as well. So this means you go faster and use less storage. Now, I mentioned RDS recommendations, but what about if you want to go into way more detail about your individual database? Well, the Amazon RDS Performance Insights is now generally available on Amazon RDS for Postgres SQL. And this allows non-experts to detect performance problems with easy-to-understand dashboards that lets you visualize your database load. So you can have a look at what's going on and make adjustments as necessary. Now, this is available now and additional database engines are in preview. So take a look at that and you can see how you're going. In fact, you can also use it for uh, Amazon Aurora with MS SQL as well. What about if you're more on the NoSQL persuasion? Well, Amazon DynamoDB has had a few really interesting changes. Firstly, the Amazon DynamoDB Accelerator or DAX SDKs have been enhanced to provide you with some significant improvements in terms of error handling, reliability, etc. And there are SDK clients for Java, JavaScript, .NET, Python, and Go. So that's really useful. And the DAX solution also now has support for encryption at rest. I know this is something a lot of customers wanted for DynamoDB for a long time. Now, if you use the DynamoDB Accelerator or DAX, you can have support for that as well. Also, Amazon DynamoDB Global Tables has been a uh, long requested feature. So this allows you to replicate tables across multiple regions uh, in a fully managed multi-region, multi-master database. That was so easy to say and so hard to engineer. I can't believe how well the team have done. 
And this does it automatically for you. It is now also supported in Asia-Pacific Tokyo, Asia-Pacific Seoul, and Asia-Pacific Sydney regions. So it is now available across a whole raft of different regions. So if you have a global-based audience using your DynamoDB tables, you have a really good capability available to you. So what about data warehouses? Well, Amazon Redshift is something used by a lot of our customers to store vast amounts of data and trawl through it on a regular basis. Well, the team have just announced that you can upgrade your Amazon Redshift DC1 reserved instances to DC2 reserved instances for the remainder of your DC1 reserved instance term uh, for no cost. Now, what this means is you get up to twice the performance of DC1 at the same price. So this is very, very exciting. There's a link in the show notes about how to do it, but essentially you should upgrade <laughs> from DC1 to DC2 because you'll get more performance for less cost, and that's always a good thing. Speaking of good things, the uh, Amazon Redshift team have been super busy with improving the customer experience. So they've now provided customized best practice recommendations with a new tool called Advisor. And this provides automated recommendations to help you optimize your database performance and decrease your operating costs. Now, the tool itself doesn't cost you anything. It simply works to generate customized recommendations about your cluster configuration, your database operations, etc., so that you can improve it. And what it does is it only displays things that will have a significant impact on your workload, up to seven. And it lets you just address your recommendation, it'll remove it from the recommendation list, you can move on to the next one, just working through. The Amazon Redshift service also now supports both current and trailing tracks for release updates. So this is interesting. Each Amazon Redshift release goes through a lot of testing through our QA and security teams. And by default, all clusters are created using the current maintenance track to get the most up-to-date certified release. However, some people want to do their own internal testing for a bit longer. So you now have the option to run a subset of clusters in the trailing track to allow for three to four weeks of integration validation in your environment before rolling it out. Now, track selection doesn't have any impact to your maintenance schedule, but just gives you an option as to which one you choose to use at any given time. So if you have longer testing cycles, this can really help. The team have also created some new metrics to help you optimize your cluster performance. So now you can get a detailed view with your workload execution breakdown graph in the console, or you can get the query runtime breakdown metric in CloudWatch. And this lets you see throughput issues, result-based issues, et cetera. Uh, you can see the amount of time that queries are spent in the plan, wait, read, and write stages. Uh, you can also see uh, workload execution breakdown, query throughput, query duration, query throughput by workload manager queue, and query duration by workload manager queue as well. So you have lots of options, again, for free uh, to optimize your environment. And the Redshift team have been super busy because they also now have support for what's called lateral column alias reference. So this means that you can refer to a column alias within the same query immediately after it's declared. So this helps you with the readability. This is going to be one of those ones that looks a lot more clear on the show notes than it does by me talking about that as well. And the team have also worked to automatically enable what's called short query acceleration. This uses machine learning to provide high performance, faster results, and better predictability of query execution times. Now, this is something to enable on your cluster. Uh, it won't be enabled by default unless you want to do it. However, it's a good way to see if it improves your environment. Some really good information about this. Also, the team who are building it do want feedback. So you'll see links in the show notes to details about that. Another handy change for customers is that with Amazon Redshift using Redshift Spectrum, you can now access nested data. So if you want to directly query nested data in Apache Parquet, Apache Orc, JSON, and Amazon ION formats or ION formats uh, that are stored in those external S3 tables, you now can 
automatically without doing any other processing. So this is really useful if you've got complex data structures that you had to pre-process in the past. Now you don't have to. So that's a lot about data, but what about the Internet of Things? Well, the AWS IT Device Defender is now generally available. This was announced at reInvent in uh, 2017. This is a fully managed service that lets you secure your fleet of IoT devices, which is a big, big challenge in many organizations as you have hundreds, thousands, or even millions of devices. How do you control them, implement security best practices, mitigate problems, etc.? This is now available to you. You can do things like create... Uh, unique device identities, ensure that you have valid certificates for identification, preventing overly, overly permissive access, lets you monitor devices for unexpected behaviors and anomalies. It can also let you alert and take actions as well. It's now available in North Virginia, Ohio, Oregon, Frankfurt, Ireland, London, Seoul, Singapore, Sydney, and Tokyo. So very excited that's available to you now. Speaking of IoT, the AWS IoT Rules Engine now supports Step Functions Action. So you can trigger workflows built with AWS Step Functions. So you can do lots of different, very sophisticated results from an IoT rule trigger. Uh, really, the sky's the limit once you're there. A small but really useful change on the networking side is that the application load balancer now supports two new actions, redirect and fixed response. And you can create these actions as part of the content-based routing rules which means you can offload this capability to the load balancer rather than having to build some sort of caching engine behind. Now, this is really important because this lets you redirect incoming requests from one URL to another. And one of the big ones is you can redirect HTTP requests to HTTPS requests. And this can help you meet your compliance goals of secure browsing, get better search ranking, and a high SSL TLS score. So we know this is really important to a lot of customers, so you can take advantage of that right now. Now, I do love a performance improvement, and the Kinesis Data Streams team have done a great job by boosting it significantly using a new HTTP2 data retrieval API and enhanced fanout. So the new HTTP2 data retrieval API, which is called Subscribe to Shard, improves the data delivery to speeds between producers and multiple consumers by more than 65%. Basically, when you use this API, data is typically delivered from producers to multiple consumers using what's called enhanced fanout within 70 milliseconds. So this is really useful to run multiple high-performance, low-latency streaming applications on a single Kinesis data stream. There's also a new version of the Kinesis Client Library or KCL to take advantage of this. Also the ability to do, as I mentioned, that enhanced fanout. Lots more documentation to dive into on that one. If you're an Amazon Elasticsearch service user, and we've spoken about Elasticsearch quite a lot, uh, you can now easily upgrade to newer versions without any downtime. You can use what's called in-place version upgrades. So now you don't have to take a snapshot, restore it to a new cluster, etc. Don't have to update your endpoint references. You just trigger it and the Amazon Elasticsearch service takes care of all the necessary steps in the background. This is really handy. It doesn't cost you anything more. My advice is don't tell the person who's used to you taking a few hours to do this process and go have a coffee while you're waiting for it to do it automatically. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, of course, I'm always wanting to talk about how to make most efficient use of your AWS environment. The free tier is one of those things that lets you do that. The AWS free tier lets you get free hands-on experience with the platform, the products, the services. It lets you use and experiment really effectively. Now, the free tier has certain limits, and the new AWS free tier widget on the AWS billing dashboard gives you a great view of exactly where you are month to date with your particular usage and a forecast based upon your use. So it gives you a very quick ready reckoner to see, hey, where am I at with my free tier? Am I going to incur any charges low as they may be in the work that I'm doing? 
And of course, data is an important part of any activities I've mentioned today. And one of the really interesting things about the cloud is it allows us to share data sets between people. And we have something called AWS Public Datasets. And we have a 11 new datasets available for researchers and developers who are interested in life sciences, finance, environmental science, astronomy, voice recognition, and GISs. Did my thesis on GISs. Uh, so in the life science, we now have the Allen Brain Observatory Visual Coding. In the financial area, we have the Eurex and Extra Trading Data. Uh, environmental, we have the Cornell EAS Data Lake. ECMWF's ERA5 reanalysis data, GeosChem input data, NOAA Global Historical Climatology Network Daily, NOAA National Water Model Short Range Forecast, NOAA National Water Model Reanalysis, the Hubble Space Telescope public data, which would be very cool. Uh, from an audio perspective, we have the Voices Obscured in Complex Environmental Settings, uh, which would be interesting. Uh, from a geospatial perspective, we have the USDA National Aerial Imagery Program provided by Esri, and of course, there are a raft of others. And basically, the way the AWS Public Dataset Program works is it covers the cost for storage of publicly available, high-value cloud-optimized datasets. So we work with data providers who are wanting to democratize access to data by making it available for analysis to help people develop new cloud-native techniques, formats, and tools that lower the cost of working with this data and really to encourage the development of communities that benefit from access to shared data sets. So you can read all about the AWS Public Dataset Program in the show notes. It's really useful and some awesome data sets to build things out of. Wow. So that was the curated list. <laughs> There's been lots more going on, but that's all I'm going to share with you on this particular episode. Thank you for sticking with me. Thank you for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS Podcast at Amazon.com. And until next time with lots more things, keep on building.